Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Garrick Small on the topic, Catholic Social Thought, What We've Forgotten. This June 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Dr. Garrick Small is an economist and associate professor at Central Queensland University. Thank you very much. It's always uh, lovely to be here, and uh, I, I enjoy. It's almost like sort of coming to a um, uh, sort of a family gathering or something. I'm not sure. Um, what I want to cover tonight is probably going to be a little bit informal, because I want to um, go through some things which are sort of the result of, of um, my personal experiences um, as a scholar, and. Uh, especially sort of bring up to date with, with, a, with a relatively recent discovery. So it's going to be a little bit personal, um, but what I expect is that we'll be talking about some topics in uh, Catholic social thought especially um, that um, today are fairly controversial. But I want to put it in the context of how the development of Catholic social thought has gone over the last century, and in particular the way that um, it's almost going around in circles, I think, or at least that's what I've discovered. So that's my plan. And to do that, I've brought a few stage props. And what I thought I'd do is kind of introduce, I want to introduce a few books to you as I, as I roll along. So I hope I don't make a lot of rattling noises to the recording as we go. Now, one of the one of the, the, the whole um, you know themes in scholarship, you know, university professors and all that sort of thing, is that we believe that as time goes on, you get these academics kind of adding up uh, little extra bits of knowledge year in year out, so that each century is going to be cleverer than the century before. And there's this notion that today. It's easier to be clever because I've got the advantage of all these books I can read. So talk about the notion of standing on the shoulders of giants in the 20th century, maybe the 19th century, 21st century. And that's a lovely idea. And it means that it's easier for me, even though I might be a little chap, stand on the, on the, uh, on the shoulders of these giants, and as a result I can see better than the giants can. So you've got these really big intellects, Maybe, you know, St. Um, uh, Thomas Aquinas or St. Bonaventure. Uh, they, they were giants. And I can just sit on their shoulders, read their books, and I can see further than they can. That's great. There's a problem, though. And that is that from time to time, the giants get forgotten. And so you get all these little angle like me running around basically reinventing or rediscovering these problems that the giants had worked on and solved but just happened to have kind of just gone off the, off the radar screen. Uh, those of you who um, have been close to EWTN would know that Dale Alquist, when he introduces the uh, Apostle of Common Sense, um, G.K. Chesterton, he talks about the way that GK is almost forgotten today, even though he's probably one of the greatest literary um, figures of the 20th century. A giant. 
largely forgotten. Now we would know him and, and the circle here would and it's absolute delight to, to read him. G.K. was interesting because he made popular a forgotten giant in his time. In fact, he did this with a number of people. One was an obscure fellow by the name of Charles Dickens, who apparently was just about forgotten at the beginning of the 20th century. And so G.K. Chesterton worked to get people to take an interest in David Copperfield and, um, and everything that... that uh, uh, Charles Dickens was about and really bring back to life that understanding, those, those issues that, that Dickens really did put before the British people. Now, that's the context. And there are a number of examples of it. I want particularly to look at this problem of the forgotten giants in the context of Catholic social thought. And uh, my odyssey is, is really started off when I first took an interest in this. I had a, a, uh, a friend, he was a, uh, a, a lawyer, and he sat me down once and sort of talked to me about usury. And I can still remember the conversation. I didn't know anything about usury at that stage. I was a property person. And I came out of that conversation, I was kind of, woo, you know, this is really big stuff. And I spent about a year or so just trying to sort out whether this fellow was really kind of a fruit loop or not. And I discovered that everything he said was, was absolutely spot on. And uh, that sort of really changed the way I studied to, uh, and, and taught finance ever since. And I went off and did doctoral studies and all that sort of thing and became very, very interested in Catholic social thought, as most of you know. And during that time, I discovered, largely using St Thomas Aquinas as the foundation, that the economics that I studied was so problematic because it violated three or four major fundamental principles of human nature. Not Catholic theology, not anything that sort of came down out of the Bible. In fact, you find in lots of places in the Bible. But modern economics, I think, violates at least three, probably four, major fundamental principles of human nature. And I guess that's been my um, hobby horse, if you like. The, in the trade, we call it my research interest ever since. Early on, as I went from usury, I went to property, which is my area. But then, that's two of the principles, by the way. Okay, Usury is one. Property is the second one. But then there's a question of buying and selling things. Trade. Just price is the technical principle for it. That's the third in St Thomas's system. And so I got interested in that. I didn't really want to go into that because I was a property person and usury was probably amazing enough. And I had sort of pretty much it. But what I found was that the three of them are all closely interpenetrated. You can't talk about property without getting talking about trade. You can't talk about trade before you start getting involved in, in, in usury and that sort of thing. Uh, so I found that I had to get into all three. That gets you into this very thorny and problematic area of the question between the communists and the capitalists, between the socialists and the free market people. And that, that's a real worry. I was kind of brought up um, not thinking that uh, the left of politics was, uh, was, was very wise and later on I discovered that the right wasn't very much better. And as a result of that, you end up with no friends. But I think that's where the Catholic Church lies. And I worked that out pretty much from first principles. And I found solace in the way that I had a few friends, most of them were dead, 
Their names were things like Leo the Thirteenth, Pius the Eleventh, Thomas Aquinas, Aristotle, people like that. Uh, but that had been sort of largely forgotten. This whole question of Catholic social thought and sort of scratching around when I was doing this, and this sort of really started in the uh, in the in the 90s and over the last oh, sort of 20 years, really. Um, having to sort of pick these ideas together. Really one of the big ones, when I first started to look at this question of communism and capitalism, was a whole lot of mates who really believed that the good Lord was kind of, you know, hiding behind the, the Liberal Party in Australia and the Republican Party in the United States, and he really meant that sort of the free market capitalism was really the way to go. And I remember talking to my parish priest about that. And he said, well, Gary, when um, I was in seminary, I remember they gave us a book, anyone who was interested in capitalism, they gave us a book by a fellow by the name of Fanfani. I don't know if it's around anymore and all that sort of stuff. And so I went down to the university library and I found this ratty old copy of Fanfani. It was gold. It was really fantastic. It is the classic quintessential description of what capitalism is, what it does to a society, and why the Catholic Church doesn't think very much of it. It was written by an obscure fellow, this Amniore Fanfani. And I remember thanking the good Father Bray for that and uh, reading Fanfani and getting really excited about it because one of the things I find really delightful about Catholic social thought, in fact, Catholic thought in general, is that it's so delightfully easy and it makes sense. I was kind of brought up on secular economics and secular philosophy and I remember doing exams in metaphysics. I thought, oh, this metaphysics is crazy stuff. Until I discovered St. Thomas. Right? Because secular metaphysics, especially modern metaphysics, is just loopy. Um, anyway, I was reading Fanfani and I thought, this is just so easy. It's so obvious. It's common sense. It's everything I understand from commerce and economics, except it doesn't have all of the kind of problems that it really does. Right? Who's Fanfani? Fanfani is an obscure university academic. However, out of his obscurity, he also went on to be a major politician in Italy, in fact, their president for a while, and the president of, oh, well, actually, I'll sort of find the book of charts here, um, the uh, UN at one stage. Anyway, Fanfani's there, this ratty old book. And I thought, oh, that's fantastic. I've read Fanfani, I've kind of memorised all my favourite parts and all that sort of thing. But isn't it a pity this book that was written back in 1930 is no longer available? That's what it was like in the you know, early 90s. Guess what? Fanfani's back in print. If you're interested, everyone should have a copy of this book if you're interested in really going sort of seriously into Catholic social thinking. It's called... Catholicism, Protestantism, and Capitalism. Back in print, and it's in print by the delightful publisher, IHS Press. Okay. IHS, by the way, small publisher, they're dedicated to uh, printing uh, works in Catholic social thought, especially reprinting, if you like, the classics. And so Fantani is, is back in business. Right? 
I didn't need to buy this book because, as I say, I've got photocopies and I've read Fanfani a couple of times and I sort of carry on. But when I saw it in the catalogue, I had to just bring it home because I had to support this company, with IHS Press, because Fanfani is such a magic book. I was really, I'll tell you what, I was just sort of flipping out at, at, at Fanfani. That was sort of a while ago, so Fanfani is considering it. I mean, I haven't read this book. Uh, as I say, on the occasion I sort of duck into it. But the book is, is really, it's superb. And I'll talk a little bit more about it later on. So that's fantastic. Written in about 1920s. And I'll just tell you a little bit about the professor. Uh, Dr. Fanfani also served as senator in the Italian parliament, as prime minister of Italy, and as president of the United Nations General Assembly. So an obscure Catholic. <clears throat> Back in the days when I think you know the UN was really sort of a, uh, a useful force. But a fantastic fellow. Okay. Uh, so Fanfani, yeah? Is he a giant like uh, Aquinas and Chesterton, or is he just there? Mm. I don't think he actually adds anything new. But in a sense, you could sort of say the same about <coughs> Chesterton, perhaps. But he puts it in a lovely package. Yeah? Uh, and so one of the reasons that I like it is that it, 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 it goes through the question of, of capitalism, where it comes from, its linkages to, uh, to Protestantism and so on, its history and that sort of thing quite well. And it's quite readable, and that's kind of fun too. So that's really good. Um, and it's in print. So that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the biggies. Just wanted to... Uh, and that, that was good. I really wanted to sort of start with that one. Um, now, I mentioned um, Chesterton and Belloc. Well, they're giants, and largely they haven't been forgotten, at least in Catholic circles. One of the things I have found, though, is that a lot of people involved shall we say, professionally, in Catholic social thought. I don't think very much of Chesterton or Belk, which is, well, you know, I'm very fond of them, um, but you, you do find that, especially in the conservative ranks. And this is one of the things that sort of a number of you are probably wary, uh, aware of. In the, uh, at least my initiation into the complexities of, of, of the Catholic world in recent times, most of us are a bit concerned about you know, the dreaded modernists and so on, you know, the left-wing kind of um, enthusiasts that don't necessarily believe that there's anything more than a piece of bread in the tabernacle. Um, and so I remember you know, I was very close to that one stage and I sort of moved right away because I thought that was really bad. And so I think it's often we tend to think that if liberalism and the modernists are bad, then we go to the other extreme. And so the Conservatives are definitely good. And I think it's something that a lot of well-meaning people have, have taken on as an idea. Huh? So you go to the Conservative side. The only problem there is that that's actually a bit of a variegated kind of group as well. You've got the people that go very far that way, and that's really what Fanfani is kind of talking against. But there's very little available in, shall we say, solid Catholic circles, which is an adequate account of the shortcomings of capitalism today. Uh, so that's kind of a problem. Okay. Now, the... Uh, okay, why was I talking about that? Because I was talking about Chesterton. The difficulty with um, Chesterton is that Chesterton is not a capitalist. He talked about Hudge and Gudge. The socialist and the capitalist, who are both, 
you know, they're ripping off Jones, the ordinary chap who just wanted to have a family and um, be a good bloke and, uh, and that sort of thing. The ordinary man, the fellow who believed in hard work and not sort of making money on the stock exchange or on an investment property here or there or something. Hudge and Gudge. So um, Chesterton was, was, was equally, again, uh, the capitalists as the, uh, as the socialists. And I think you sort of see that. And I certainly remember it because um, at about the same time I was starting to get excited about this stuff, I was also getting involved in the, uh, in the NCC in the days when uh, uh, great uh, Bob San Marie was still about. And he was very much the same ilk. Whereas when he passed, I think it's something that we've sort of noticed, or at least I've noticed, uh, the NCC has tended to sort of go very much, you know, a bit more sort of pro the, um, the very conservative side. To the extent that there are conservatives and conservatives now. Uh, in the United States, in the literature, people talk about neoconservatives, and you've probably heard that expression, and that sort of means a whole bunch of things. People like to blow up sort of the Middle East, but also in the economic area, uh, sort of Catholics who think that um, pretty much radical private uh, um, liberal capitalism is, is a good idea as well. There's neoconservatives, like the far conservatives. But there's another group, and I like this name, well, I haven't heard it very much in Australia, although some of you might be familiar with it, paleoconservatives. Paleo, old conservatives. And uh, in the United States, apparently there's this group that are identifying themselves as paleoconservatives. And they would be people that are not on the left, not on the far right, tend to think that if the Pope says, please don't go into Iraq and bomb the hell out of them, uh, that's not a bad thing to do. And a lot of other kind of almost old-fashioned sort of conservative ideas. So the paleo conservatives. And the paleo conservatives are the people that tend to like Chesterton and Belloc and uh, run things like IHS Press. Okay, so that's, um, that, that's Fanfani. Now, Flying Fanfani was kind of curious, see, because I'd been sort of cruising around trying to find scholars to put me wise to, to where Catholic social thought had, and had gone and whether or not this question about usury was in fact just over the top of the extreme. And I found very, very difficult to do that today, at least in the English tradition. I only speak English, which is a real limitation for a scholar. Uh, but I went over to the United States a few times and sort of hung out with a whole lot of very well-meaning and well-placed uh, Catholic academics. And by and large, I found that um, very few of them uh, would read Fantine. And not a lot of them would really support it, at least I found. And then I discovered a bit of an underground. And that's where sort of IHS Press came from. But I think that's probably where the, um, the answers are going to lie. If I describe myself as an underground, then maybe I'm a bit radical. Maybe that's why no one's kind of come tonight at this stage. No, this little fruit loop smalls here. When you say paleo conservatives, are you talking specifically under the umbrella of the Catholic Church? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And you're thinking of the way that neoconservative is a, is a curious group because while there's a definite Catholic neoconservative group, neoconservative is, is a very different meaning for the average American. No, no. Yeah. no it's just that I want to be wondering if you're talking on the broader spectrum the world or, or specifically Catholics? Oh, the only ones I've come across are Catholics. Ah, right. yeah. um, you certainly, you see, I, I was introduced, I mean, this is my personally, um, when, when I'd, I'd read this and then sort of was out there, you know, at Franciscan University and places like that, 
trying to find other people that, that sort of thought this might have made sense and linked into St Thomas especially. Do you know which party Ben Barney belonged to? Not off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I have read his biography years and years ago. Uh, I couldn't tell you now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The, the important thing is that there's this, there's these three groups, and in fact, just to take that point just a little bit further, these three groups. You've got the the, the liberals. We in the Catholic Church would tend to think of them as modernists. We've got the neoconservatives. We've got the paleoconservatives. If you want to kind of draw that kind of a picture. This is only an opinion. Maybe we should turn the machine off. No. When we think of a modernist, it's somebody who has embraced modern philosophy, tried to weld it into the church, and has ended up with opinions which are kind of getting pretty close to heresy. Yeah? We'll say. Pashendi would say something a little bit more uh, severe. Now, we normally think of people who take modern thinking, weld it to their Catholicism, and, and go off, we call them modernist, and we think of them as a left-winger, or a liberal, and all that sort of stuff. They will like abortion, and they will do all that sort of stuff. However, I think I might have done a talk here a while back about the two types of liberalism. There's another way of taking modern thought welding it into the church's thinking and coming out with a different solution, which is always also a bit off the beam. No? And that's this whole understanding of what modern philosophy gives you in terms of liberalism. There are two liberals in Enlightenment thought. Enlightenment thought is the thinking of the 18th century. The two liberalism comes out of uh, the 1700s, uh, people like Rousseau, Voltaire, uh, Adam Smith, um, David Hume, Ben Franklin. There are two liberalisms. One liberalism is the liberalism that gives us the American idea of liberal, which is the Australian Labor Party, L-A-B-O-R Party. And that's liberal on the left, which is the people that think abortion's okay and that sort of stuff. They're liberal because they want to be free to muck about and do whatever they want without any restrictions. However, if you're in a Brit... Uh, an Englishman, and you say you're a liberal, that actually means you're a liberal capitalist, you're a right-wing liberal. And that notion is very entrenched in the idea of the sort of English philosophy. And that, that, that sort of came out of the idea of Adam Smith, the father of modern philosophy, David Hume. And we get that word, or that, 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 that sort of idea comes through when we use the expression liberal capitalism. In the United States, you see, we've got a liberal who likes abortion, and then you've got another liberal who's a capitalist, who's a Republican, who doesn't like abortion. Yeah? But they're both liberals. And, and the use of that term actually sort of comes out of the Enlightenment thinking, it comes out of materialism, and comes out of rejection of God. It's said that the American... War of Independence was fought between two armies, both with the war cry, liberty. The British were fighting for liberal capitalism, which was the exploitation of the colonies, which is the way that the British had run their colonies for hundreds of years. 
The Americans were shouting liberty because they wanted freedom, the, the, the socialist kind of liberty. Huh? Why am I stressing this? If there are two types of liberty, if there are two types of modern expression of how to run the world, they both come out of the Enlightenment, they both come out of rejection of a good Lord. When we weld either of those to what appears to be Catholic faith, you end up with what Pius X was rejecting in Pascendi. There are two types of modernists. We've got a left-wing modernist, who would be the kind of fellow who, you know, say, doesn't believe in transubstantiation and all the other stuff. You've got a right-wing modernist, who is uh, the kind of fellow that sort of thinks that people should be allowed to do whatever they like and reject, uh, I think, what is really uh, naturally available uh, to the intellect in terms of how you should run your material uh, affairs as far as uh, trade and property goes, and would reject something like Fen Fani. So the, the thesis I'm suggesting, or the idea I'm suggesting, is that we need to expand our understanding of what a modernist is to include both left and right-wing liberal uh, modernists. And largely this is kind of what these, these, these books are responding to or um, trying to sort of put some substance to. And it's curious to see because this, this was the thinking in the church before the Second World War. This was published in 1930. It was very, very clear. This is the way the church has always thought. And for those of you who have done you know, some amount of, of theology, especially the way the church, this theology works, there's this notion of the hermeneutic of continuity. The church does not change its moral teaching. It grows it. At no point will the church say, yeah, that was the moral thinking sort of a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago or fifty years ago. It never does that. You know, in order to change something today. If the church felt a particular way about liberal capitalism in 1930, the church can't not think about it in the same way today. And we might learn a little bit more about it, and we put some more nuances in it. We can't not reject it. We can't turn around and suddenly make you know, contraception right or abortion right, or all the rest of it. There's those things that just are part of the church, and the same with many other things. Okay. But there's not a great deal written, because for some reason, this side of the Second World War, as I say, we're not sort of talking about that very much. Another book. So the, the official teaching of the church hasn't changed. It's the academics that you're talking about, I think. You're quite right. And also the, the weight of... The culture. Um, just coming over tonight, um, I don't know if you guys, some of you might, um, you know, I download MP3s off the EWTN website because often they have these fantastic programs but they're on 4am in the morning or something, even for the Australian satellite. You know. But um, there's a lovely series which right now you can download on Heresies by Father Charles Connor. Fantastic historian. Go to the EWTN website, ferret through the television thing, go to audio archive. Uh, no, it's just on the, in the MP3 podcast stuff. O'Connor. What's that? Charles Connor or O'Connor? Uh, uh, Connor. No, no L. Okay. Uh, every month they have a, a, a series, they pull out of their archive and they put up. It's really easy to get down and, and download. 
and the, the stuff on, on heresies is, um, is really good. Well, anyway, just responding to your point, Jim. Um, late Holy Father, uh, in, um, uh, when he was talking about capitalism, I think one of the... He had the, 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 the size, the, 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 he, was, he was a great thinker. And so he was able to put the whole thing together and look at both sides and see the good and the bad in both sides. And what the problem is that the academics have come along, a bit like your average heretic, and simply take a little half a phrase out of context and say, well, because the Holy Father, because Pope John Paul II said capitalism can have some good points, and I believe it does, therefore capitalism is fine. You know, I remember, you know, there's this whole pile of, of, of papers written after, um, after that, all sort of saying, oh, you know, the paper proves capitalism. And he didn't. It was just that it was taken, you know, totally out of context. And then there are, there are American academics all over the place that uh, still take that line. And they write books um, explaining the Catholic social thought over the last century, all from the capitalist perspective. And there are a lot of people in Australia that are, that are very influenced by it. It's, it's really quite a worry. You're exactly right. And that sort of comes to, to another point, which I have to get to a bit later on. But that wasn't the way it was before the Second World War. You know, and that's really my point tonight. And that's why books like this, and I don't want to hold up Panfani all night, because there are a lot of other books I want to show you as well. Uh, this is a little one, George O'Brien. Um, now, this is sort of close to my heart, because if I was to go over to the United States to a Catholic economist scholarship, uh, sort of conference and say anything nice about the medieval period, I'd get shouted down. Yeah? And it's just one of the really unfortunate things about it. For some reason, I got this idea that the medieval period was a really backward time. And all sorts of it. Rubbish. During the medieval period, the increase in the standard of living uh, the, uh, the level of economic growth was phenomenal. Yeah. And I can sort of do the numbers for that, or I might have done it for you, you know, in, in, in days gone by. Uh, but for whatever reason, I think Protestants largely, uh, you know, convinced people that uh, the medieval period was, was dreadful. But anyway, th this is, this is uh, George O'Brien, The Economic Effects of the Reformation. Again, this was one that was originally written uh, pre-World War II. Very clear. This one's probably not, as, not quite as clear to read as Fanfani. This is a book of history. Um, when I read it, uh, you know, I read through it. And, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. You know, it's got a lot of true things in it. I, I don't find that it's, it's written super clearly, but for someone who's not familiar with the topic uh, and is interested in, in what capitalism or, or rather the, the, the Protestants have done economically, this is a good book as a starter. Uh, the Economic Effects of the Reformation. Uh, George O'Brien has a couple of books that are, that are in print. He was an academic in Ireland. Um, and a lovely book. Again, IHS Press. Um, and very good if you want to uh, build up your uh, your library. On, so um, basically, what does it encapsulate? Okay. This is an interesting book. This is written by a Catholic. The best book, I think, uh, especially if you're kind of into the... Like the Economic apologetics, shall we say, is a book by, by um, uh, Max Weber, the uh, W-E-B-E-R, spelled like Weber. Max Weber's book is 
the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, the PESC. Yeah. That book is a killer. Weber was a Protestant, and he noticed that uh, capitalism evolved at the same time as the Reformation. But he also noticed that there were some pretty peculiar things about capitalism. And so Weber's book is really good because it's a capitalist bagging something which... No, he's a Protestant bagging something which was a result of the Protestant Reformation. What George O'Brien does is almost the same thing with a lot less words. So what he does, he sort of tracks the way that economic development actually slowed down and the standard of living of the majority of people in the countries that were affected by capitalism actually went down. It's kind of curious because in those countries that accepted Protestantism and capitalism, their overall national product went up, but for the great majority of their population, the standard of living went down. Now, what you find is you see the capitalists kind of come along and they say, hey, look at the GDP, the, the gross product of the country in England. Went through the roof as a result of capitalism. Fantastic, capitalism's great. What they don't tell you is that at the same time, the average Englishman, maybe 80 or 90% of the population, had to steal apples and buns and stuff to go and sort of feed themselves and their family. That's really bizarre. Yeah. Um, so you've got that sort of problem, a matter of how you look at it. I think the bigger view is to look at the whole country. You know, if you really do have a country and you aren't at war with your own people, then the kind of experience of places like England in the uh, 1700s, 1800s uh, should sort of not just wake you up, but sort of scare you witless. Anyway, um, George O'Brien uh, sort of does a summary of those processes, the way that the, the Protestant Reformation is associated with a different type of doing business, still with a free market. Yeah? Because before um, the Protestants came along, before capitalism, there was a free market. But it was a free market within a religious sense that kept things far more honest. It kept things actually healthy economically, but it didn't make the massive profits for the relatively small number of people who became fabulously wealthy while everyone else went poor. Uh, so George O'Brien's book is a good read. Yeah. And it sort of puts a bit of theory in it. And it's good because he actually... The title is The Economic Effects of the Reformation. And I say, this is a nice, easy little one to, to read. It's a Catholic book. So if you want to impress somebody who's not a Catholic, you get Max Weber's book. It's a bigger book. It says almost the same thing. Um, and uh, that's a Protestant talking. Yeah. Uh, but, but this is a lovely little book, and it's a good introductory to, to sort of the insight. It's an antidote for people that sort of tell you that the Middle Ages and the medieval period is the same as the Dark Ages and was dreadful. Right? And in fact, the medieval period was a fantastic, probably the greatest era in our culture finished around the year 1500. Okay, so that's George O'Brien. Now, because I'm post-Vatican two-person and very fond of ecumenism and all that sort of stuff, I'm actually going to tell you about a book by a fellow who's not a Catholic. This book by Carl Zimmerman, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N, and his book is called Family and Civilization. 
This book I actually heard of um, from Scott Harm. Dr. Harm was using it for a completely different context because he was looking at the family side of it and I was sort of watching an interview with him and he was talking about you know, his, uh, the Lamb Supper and all that sort of his family metaphor for his theology. That was fantastic and he was talking about Zimmerman. And he did make this little mention that Zimmerman also noticed that when civilizations rise and get stronger, they do it with a particular understanding of family. And Scott Hahn was taking that into the way that there's a natural understanding of family and he takes it into the theology and the covenant and all that fantastic stuff he does. But he mentioned it's also strange that when civilizations are getting stronger and growing, taking out of the world stage, not only do they have families in a particular way and a whole lot of ethical things in a particular way, they also have property in a particular way. And bing, you know, my antenna went up and I thought, fantastic. So I went and found a ragged little copy of, of Zimmerman in Fisher Library. And I tell you, it was seriously ragged. It was the only copy I could find in Sydney. And I read Zimmerman and I read Zimmerman. This was sort of goes back you know, 10 years ago. I think it was about six months before I submitted my PhD. Right? This book made about a third of my PhD superfluous because I had to do all this stuff by research from first principles, basically. And a lot of the stuff that I'd done in my PhD was the way that cultures and property kind of had this symbiosis in a sense. What I'd found was that in early Rome, the way that they did property was the same as the medieval period. In a kind of metaphorical kind of sense, right? There's similarities. What killed Rome was private property. For instance, how? How? Okay. Everyone from Aristotle to St. Thomas and, you know, about a hundred years of, of popes over the last century, uh, have said that property, when we own something, especially property in things which we don't make ourselves. If I was to write this book, it would be mine, absolutely mine. Right? But if I just go out into the bush somewhere and just pick up a nugget off the ground or something, that's something that I haven't made. Right? Property in those things which I haven't made is only ever a convention. It's an arbitrary decision. Yeah? Who owns it? You or me? It's a certificate of title. I can't actually you know, say there's some kind of intimate connection. Right? So there's a, this massive problem of property goes right back through time. The consistent thought of disinterested philosophers, we'll say, has always been that property should be a combination of private property, private ownership, with obligation, with a sense of obligation to the community. Early Rome, uh, property was like it was owned on a family basis, and the idea was that you used your family's property for the good of your entire family, your sisters, your cousins, your aunts, your grand uncles, and everybody. Right? So you, you'd be clan. As well as that, the Romans, being very patriotic people, used their property wealth uh, to support um, the, the larger uh, Roman community, Latin community. And so they would equip their army and so on out of their private property wealth. So this notion that your private property was used for the community in some sense, your clan community or the larger community. The same thing was true in early Greece. But, and this is what I found in, in Zimmerman really crisp. I've done it by sort of reading a whole lot of books on history. Zimmerman actually put numbers on it. Zimmerman said that about 450 BC, 
Greece discovered, invented, started to use on a large scale private property. Within about a century or so, they'd been wiped off the map by the Romans because they became very selfish. And the selfishness showed itself in family issues. They, they started having divorce, they started having small families. It showed themselves in their commerce and their property became private. Where I'd own my property as private rights and I would charge you for using it and I'd charge my kids for selling it on. And the, because the, the Greeks became selfish, they wouldn't sort of, they didn't have the patriotism to defend themselves, and the Romans came in and took them over. The Romans did the same thing at 150 BC. They went from having property, which was for the clan, for the, for the kingdom, all that sort of thing, private ownership with obligation, and then they became selfish as well. Zimmerman has some fantastic um, descriptions of late Roman life. Uh, late Roman being from about 150 BC onwards, but especially from about 150 AD onwards, Zimmerman describes how effective the Romans were at abortion. Family planning. Apparently in the year 150 AD, 150 years after Christ, the plural for child was a joke. It was used in comedies. You've got children, ha, two of them, We think that we've discovered contraception. No. The Romans did it before us with herbs and other things. Very, very sad tale. Zimmerman recounts it. Zimmerman, by the way, was a Lutheran. I think he's probably a bit like Lewis, you know. Probably if he'd lived a few more years, he would have died a Catholic. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know if I'd actually say that. But um, Zimmerman sort of drew together um, all of these observations about history and about the way that civilizations rise and fall on the way their families operate. And an indicator of how their families operate is how they deal with property. And how they deal with a lot of other things as well. Law and order, ethics in general, a whole lot of things. This is a lovely, lovely book to read. It's good if you like history, especially putting together things like classical history. What Zimmerman, you know, again, this was written before the Second World War, and sort of the way that people looked at things was a little bit different. When I was doing my research, I was looking at different cultures. And so I would look at indigenous people, and I still have a, a bit of a fondness for working with South Pacific people. Zimmerman would say, well, you know, they're just savages, don't worry about them. And he only looked at people like the great civilizations in history. So he concentrated mainly on the Romans, the Greeks, um, Germans, uh, and so on, a bit with the Chinese. Was, was Zimmerman looking at contemporary societies as well as... Zimmerman was a bit like Charles Dickens. We remember Charles Dickens as, as a great novelist, but he, Dickens only wrote his novels as a, a tangent to his major purpose, which was political. Dickens was really trying to influence that sort of middle and upper class in England, get them to realise that they're actually human beings, you know, that are treading on. And that's why I wrote sort of uh, Oliver Twist, right? Zimmerman was a bit like that. He's a, he was an academic. Um, he, his specialty, his academic area was a family sociologist, a rural sociologist. Now, the important thing about this, and if, if the word agrarian movement sort of rings bells for you, he was a part of the agrarian movement. And in accounts... What was the 
the agrarian movement is kind of a bit of a spin-off, again I'm going to use kind of obscure words for some, of the distributist movement. The distributist movement was the economic system that um, especially uh, G.K. Chesterton and, and uh, Belloc uh, suggested as, a, as an alternative to capitalism. The agrarian movement was the kind of almost the rural application of distributism. Distributism is the idea that uh, communities work best when there's a widely distri wide distribution of small property. That's kind of probably the simplest way of describing distributism. The agrarian movement was take that idea into the farms, and uh, that will give you the idea of the ideal community as one where you have a large percentage of your population that own small farms and live on the land. Yeah? And so this, this agrarian movement um, you know, has had a lot of following, especially in the early part of the, the, the 20th century. Uh, Cheston and Belloc um, uh, sort of started, in fact, the Santa Maria, uh, as I understand, although I'm not that familiar with some, Jim, you might know about. You wrote the Year of Their Mother in 1945. Okay, fantastic. You also started a, a bit of an experimental group too, didn't you? Sam Isidore at Wagga. Okay. He started that, that type of concept. Terrific. Okay. Later, later in life, he was to. He did say he wished to burn the earth and mother because he he didn't uh, anticipate uh, the kind of reality that for farms to be economically viable, they had to be much bigger. Yeah. Actually, that's a, a question I don't want to go too far into tonight, but. Um, yeah, one of, the, one of the problems with these things, to get them to work well, you've got to have almost all hands on deck. You know, you can't have distributors as you know, 10 percent of your population and work. I, I don't think that's got a slightly technical question. Uh, but there is a delight in the agrarian movement. Um, there's a book that I'm, or a manuscript that I'm reading right now by a Dominican, Conrad Penty. I can't show you the book because it's not in print yet. However, probably by the end of the year, IHS will be printing it. Um, and this book by, by Penty, I just recommend it to you. Oh, yeah, short things. It's only about 60 pages. Well, it's 60 pages in word format. It's like a poem. And for a Dominican to write a poem is a bit of an achievement, right? Because they're St. Thomas Aquinas, nuts and bolts, you know. But and it's, it's, it's prose. But you read it. And as I'm reading it, I'm finding it's this delightful poetic entry into the way that the human condition needs to be understood to be fully human in terms of our mortality which takes you into our relationship with the earth and the cycles of the earth and the productivity, the fecundity of the earth. And right now we've got this, uh, the, the uh, theology of the body which is kind of like the human side of that. But what um, uh, Conrad Penny OP was, was saying is that the agrarian movement by encouraging a, a reasonable portion of your population to live rurally means a reasonable portion of your population is actually you know, their, their, their toes are in the dirt you know, they're, they're close to the fecundity of the soil they're seeing sort of the uh, you know, the um, God working, you know, in, in, in the grass growing uh, I, I'm just I'm just flipping out with that right now. I won't go too far. I don't read a lot of poetry, and I do miss it intensely. 
Um, but um, and again, that's going to be a, another little one. And he was also writing from a fair while ago. Uh, and it kind of it fills in the a part that we are losing, I think, in our part of history as we become more technological. Everything comes out of the machine. We live in in cities. Now, I don't want to go back and be a Luddite and sort of say, I'm going to go back in the bush and that sort of thing. But I think there is an element of, of validity in that. I'm living with the, living with the cycles of the, the, of the earth and yeah, its production. But yes. is that realistic when you've got a, a, a huge populations in cities and things like that? You, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and that's why I don't want to wax lyric too much about it, but there is something about it that I think we're probably in the fullness of time going to have to come back and discover. And I, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, just reading Penny's book kind of just reminded me of it. Um, anyway, we won't, we won't go too far in, 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 into, uh, into that side, but that's really to give you a bit of a feel for the... Um, the there's something about this agrarian movement that, that doesn't seem to be fully understood. You see it, Hans Vers von Balthasar, the, the great theologian, um, he put or, or did a fair bit of work on the theology of beauty just before we leave the agrarian movement too far. And for someone brought up, you know, sort of you go through uh, St. Thomas's thought and, and so on, that's very scientific, it's crisp, it's rational, it, it really works in the head, it, it is the true. Hans Urs von Balthasar wanted to stress in the 20th century what he saw as a deficiency of our understanding of the aesthetic and the, the theology of beauty, and so that's second transcendental. And I think this is the sort of thing that Conrad Penty is on to, that, that somehow there's this this Beauty, which you've got to get close to God with. Whether or not you can put it in your economics or not, I'm, I'm not entirely sure at this stage, but somehow I think if we leave it out totally, we, we, we end up sort of certainly poorer as a result of it. Okay. So that's uh, Zimmerman. As I say, he was the, uh, uh, the Lutheran, but the agrarian movement. Uh, but, but reading Zimmerman is, is very useful. And I think it's good for Catholics to have on their bookshelf some authors who are not Catholic. Because I think often there are, and you've got to pick your mark, obviously. Um, this one is good because really the ideas in here are Catholic. Yeah. Uh, in that I think Catholic thought is human thought. It's the, it's the best of human nature, liberated from ideologies, being able to just think through exactly what it is to be human. And that's why I think we can take Plato and Aristotle so easily, whereas our world can't. Right now in the universities, do they teach Aristotle and Plato? No, they can't. Aristotle wasn't a Catholic, but he was a disinterested thinker. So was Plato. We can do that. Anyway, um, Zimmerman is, um, is, is very good. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis. Is, is a great non-Catholic writer, although he doesn't really write in uh, Catholic social thought. Okay. Uh, there's a couple of others. I don't have examples here. Uh, one is a fellow by the name of Pesch, P-E-S-C-H. He was a Jesuit, I'm pretty sure. Uh, not very much available in English. 
from Heinrich Pesch, except uh, there's a chap, a uh, American, uh, Rupert Ederer, who has been translating Pesch and a few others uh, for some time. Uh, Pesch is very, very good. Uh, he was, I think, German, uh, probably a Jesuit. Um, and it's kind of coming back into print through Rupert Ederer's work. Rupert Ederer is, is a, he's, he's a very good, solid uh, Catholic um, economist, uh, highly regarded in the United States, not a neoconservative. Uh, he writes some very interesting pieces from time to time, although now he's retired, so I think he's kind of backing off a bit. But Pesh is there, uh, and it's said that uh, Pesh is, is behind um, more than one of the uh, uh, social encyclicals. Pesh is kind of interesting because he appears to be a free market writer and so he kind of gets under the guard of a lot of the neoconservatives. But ultimately he's kind of coming down in the bigger picture which is the Catholic understanding. So that's kind of really, that, that, that's good. Okay. Um, right, so, and I think there are a number of others that are, that are coming along. What I now want to move on to though is something which... Um, I was given about 10 years ago. This is an old one, right? This is a book. It's called The Framework of a Christian State by a father, Edward Carl, spelt the same way as our expressway, C-A-H-I-L-L. Father Carl S.J. was an Irish academic. Uh, this is written, I think, in 1932. Yes, by Gill and Son. In the um, uh, during the pontificate of Pius XI, and I mention this book because this has actually sat on my shelf for about a dozen years. I was given this and one other. I don't think I brought its companion uh, again around the time when I was finishing my my doctorate, and I was in a bit of a hurry and I'd done most of my literature search, so I didn't really want to read too much more. At least got into it, so I. I flicked through it, sort of found a couple of quotes, and in it went as a citation, and all the dreadful things that academics occasionally do when they're being naughty. And I put sort of Carl away because it was kind of a bit old. Anyway, I've been crook for the last little while. Uh, in fact, all of the semester I've been sort of spending most of my time in bed. So I'm running out of things to do. And here was Carl sitting on a bookshelf. So I thought, oh, I guess I'd better read this thing and see if there's anything worthwhile in there. 1932, you know, a bit old fashioned. Well, anyway. I started to read this, and it was a killer. Again, I, I told you my experience with this, right? This almost made my PhD unnecessary. Well, I started to read this book, and, uh, you know, I've been sort of agonising over, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the modernism left and right, and all that sort of stuff, and kind of doing that from first principles. And uh, a number of other topics which have come up in recent times, Anyway, I started to read through this, and I think you've probably got a, an idea of what I'm about these days. Chapter 1, Pagan Society in the Roman Empire. Zimmerman. Chapter 2, Christian Society in the 5th century. Beginnings of Christianity, and all of the things that Christianity did, which is actually kind of, Zimmerman gets onto a little bit, but I've done a fair bit of research on how Rome went into Christianity and how the Germans kind of reached a whole lot of things that I've done. Chapter 2, Carl. Chapter 3, 
the early Middle Ages. Mate, this fellow thinks Middle Ages was a good period. And he goes to a very simple, very, very easy to read account of the mechanics of the Middle Ages. Replaces a whole lot of books that I've read. Killer. What's the title of that one again, please? The Framework of a Christian State. Anyway, I could go through... But, um, oh, I'll just go through some of the, some of the top, uh, chapter headings. So I, I love this book. Uh, early Middle Ages, the 12th and 13th century, Social and Political Principles of Christendom, uh, Chapter 5. That's really lovely. It's just crisp, clear. It's written almost like the Summa Theologica. You know, you can just read it as common sense. It sort of follows, but it's done with rigour. It's really fantastic. Uh, but then it moves on. And so it does all this historical stuff and just basically sort of summarises all the books that I've sort of shown you today. But then it moves on to talk about, um, you know, contemporary issues. Liberalism. In 1930, they didn't talk about capitalism, they talked about liberalism. It means the same thing. And this book has a lovely chapter on, on liberalism. The capitalist regime and individualistic capitalism, the rise and growth of capitalism and so on. So that's chapter 10. No, no, chapter 9. And then it goes on to chapter 10, which is individualistic capitalism, which takes the idea further. Then it goes into socialism. The neat thing about this book is that it lines up side by side the ups and downs of communism and capitalism and shows why the Catholic Church crisply rejects both of them because they're so narrow and they introduce so many problems. I wish my mates over in North America. Anyway, I'll talk to you. I'll tell you a little bit about um, my, my my conversations with them a bit later on over this book. Individualistic capitalism, socialism, evolutionary communism, uh, Freemasonry. It's a lovely account of Freemasonry. There's a commonality between these three themes, by the way: communism, capitalism, and Freemasonry. I'm going to come back to shortly. Then it goes on to the social questions, Catholic social movement, and that's kind of really nice. It sort of goes through um, the innovations of, of um, distributism, but sort of some other things you know, very well. Uh, then talks about some other uh, social issues, which are also very pertinent to today. Chapter 19. No, chapter 18, the family. Zoom again. Uh, but from a Catholic perspective, this is 100% Totally Catholic. Um, chapter 20. No, chapter 19. Husband and wife. Chapter 20. Parents and children. Now, the family that is... Talking about, what's that? I'm so sorry. How was the gentleman? Uh, his, his name is, is um, Edward Carl. C-A-H-I-L-L. When he talks about the family... Does he kind of talk about the sort of family dynamics that you find Zimmerman talking about historically? But I mean, he's talking specifically about Catholic thought with the family, and so that's kind of really nice. But it's uncluttered, and it's the kind of um, understanding of the family that was very, very strong in the Catholic Church at that period in history. Remember, this is written two years after the Lambeth Conference, where the Anglicans kind of said the contraception was all right. But the Catholic Church was still very much monolithic as to what the family was all about. 
thing which I find really delightful about this is it roundly condemns feminism. I should get my wife to actually say that because if a bloke says it in public, you know, you get shot, do you? Okay. It also shows the way that a correct understanding of the family is to see husband and wife as totally equal, but quite different in terms of their roles. And the role of the husband and the family is to be the head of the house. We have this as, as merely a historical title, a bit like the Queen of England. Queen of England isn't very much of a queen, I don't think she just gets a good photo opportunity on the front of ladies' magazines. The head of the house, as husband and father, is almost the same, I think, in our culture. Whereas this explains, I feel like almost, not only the theology, or it doesn't mean very much in the theology, it just sort of basically asserts how a Catholic family should run and why there's a liberation that comes from having a head of the, the, the house, which is the father, and a mother who then has the freedom to be able to run the family, be able to love the children and care for them without all of the fuss and bother of having to make the decisions and, and, and all that sort of thing. And I found that really delightful because that was, to me was just like a really lovely breath of fresh air. You've got all the feminists and psychologists these days that just got all these sort of really weird ideas about Equality, but it's 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 a Marxist equality that we've got sort of invading our families now. And so, as a result, sorry, is that a, a is Karl's book a from a historical perspective or a philosophical perspective or um, he embraces a whole economic perspective? He embraces the whole gamut, doesn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And in fact, but, later on... But written from a philosophical standpoint? Or this fellow is, uh, is a university professor. I suspect that most of his students will be seminarians. I would love to know what shelf this book was on before it was kind of hand through uh, a couple of hands and given to me. I suspect it's... I got one, and I read it about 15 years ago. Yeah? Front to back cover. And you're right, it's a fantastic book. I got it from this, uh, thrown out in an old book stuff, probably from a um, um, either I either purchased it from Manly Seminary or from uh, book sales at uh, Street. Yeah, Randwick. Yep. One of those things. No, that's not. I think this was probably a standard text for priests. You know, up until the seventies. That's that's my suspicion is. And I suspect that you probably found it in the seminaries and in the monasteries and so on. I think it was a bit optimistic. I think it would have been dumped by the 1950s. Yeah. Maybe so. I've got this in a, um, as I say, a companion volume um, that I didn't bring along tonight, but I've yet to, well, I've, I've, I've flicked through it a bit, uh, by a fellow by the name of Clune, C-L-U-N-E. Uh, the title escapes me for the moment, but I'm told it'll probably be back in print. Um, yeah, no, it, it may have been superseded by then. The, the, the curious thing is that I've, I've found that, in fact, I, I, I dug up a, a review of this book. I was kind of Googling around. This one has been back in print. But I'll just tell you a little bit more about the story. Okay, I've, I've sort of read this book and a bit like Robert, you know, sort of getting more and more excited over the last few weeks. And uh, I, I sort of on an email forum with these... Um, American uh, social scientists, Catholic social scientists, the 
SCSS, Society of Catholic Social Scientists. Anyway, on this email forum, we got talking about the war in Iraq, um, and that was kind of interesting, rather exciting. And we talked about a few other things, and I kept finding myself quoting this book. Uh, and a couple of chaps kind of emailed back to me, who was sort of a bit on side with generally what I was saying. And they were saying, yes, this book is a compendium of Catholic social thought. And most people who have got copies of it treat it like gold. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm not such a fruit loop after all. I don't know how you feel about yours. But there are a lot of very politically uncorrect ideas that you'll find in this book that just happen to be very Catholic and make an awful lot of sense. And I think we'll be making a lot of sense in the fullness of time. I don't know if you... But the neat thing is, this was reprinted by a publisher by the name of Roman Catholic Books. Not a very original title. Uh, Roman Catholic Books, you can sort of Google that or even sort of look up on Amazon and you'll find Framework of Christian State by Carl, C-A-H-I-L-L, Roman Catholic Books. Unfortunately, it looks like it's now out of print again. Uh, at least it's off the Roman Catholic Books catalogue. And when I looked up at Amazon just a couple of days ago when I was preparing to come here, I noticed that they described it as an out-of-print book. But you probably ought to get a reprint if you wanted a copy uh, from you know the recent printing, and it will be just a, a, a copy of this. Uh, so that's kind of really, really nice. Yep. Because it was written in 32. That's right. Um, and, uh, but do you think perhaps it's redundant in inverted commas because of uh, the Second Vatican Council guarding its stairs and, and some of the social encyclicals since came up? Yep. yep. No, that, that's a very good point. In fact, I'm. <laughs> I, you, I mean, must I been, you must have been knowing I wanted somebody to ask that question. I, mean, I believe in the hermeneutic of continuity. Yep. I'm, yep. I'm not suggesting yep. there is a conflict, but yep. the average Joe out there, yep. or what, to use your term tonight, the average leftist liberal modernist, yep. they would throw that book out oh, yeah. Yeah. on the basis of that sort of argument. Sure. No, no. Uh, the rightist modernist would do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, there's a, a large number of people who will throw it out. But, and, and you're right, it's an old book uh, to the extent that it, it was written in 1932, but it's as old and as irrelevant as Chesterton is. Yeah? Uh, one of the things I find is that the writing on, on these topics today hasn't really progressed. I was expecting it to be nuanced and, you know, the standing on shoulders of giants kind of argument. But what you find is we're kind of going round and round in circles. You've got a, a, a rump of people that are trying to, you know, draw it all together and all the rest of it. But in a sense, why go? I mean, I'm just about to write an economic book myself. Why go and write this again, but now be able to put quotes in from, uh, you know, JP too? Yeah? Uh, but it's a fair point. A lot of people won't like it, partly because it... You know, this fellow is, is, is very um, loyal to uh, Pius XI, and I find that absolutely delightful to read. The point I'm not following is uh, that people are going around in circles, but, you know, for, for 
for a simple guy like myself who takes the executables as the official teaching of the church. Yep. Uh, and uh, you're talking about Catholic social thought, and, and that, that's a broad category of stuff. But Catholic social doctrine is a part of the faith. We are obliged to accept it. Uh, it comes under the magisterium of the church. So the, the three encyclicals, for example, of John Paul II on Catholic social matters, they are a part of our faith. Yes. I think that distinction needs to be made in what you're saying. Okay, no, no that, 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 that's fine. That's fine. I guess... Yes, and I'm really talking about social thought rather than social doctrine, although I'm not going outside of doctrine. The point about books like this, and I guess this sort of comes back to, to, um, uh, to Robert's point as well, that these present the core issues very crisply and consistently. Most of what you'll find today, I mean, apart from the encyclicals are good, but the encyclicals, by putting more detail in, actually make it harder to find some of those simple answers. And as a result, the secondary authors come along and then they then write all these complicated, you know, causes to, to to get around and prove black is white because they really want something else to come out of it. Yeah? And so one of the problems is we've got this sort of mire of Catholic thought now because you can't go so easily to a accessible reference to find what the Catholic Church teaches. And you go to the Catechism, I guess, but that's a little bit like that's sort of the skeleton to, to sort of come down to the applied stuff. You don't know, you pick up a book, you don't know whether it's going to be you know, a left-wing modernist or a neoconservative or, or somebody else, right? And you don't have that, that, um, you know, that presentation or something which is kind of, shall we say, more reliable or a, uh, an authentic view of, of what um, Catholics do. Social thought is meant to entail. That makes is that well, an yeah, question? We do, but you know, I think we need to come back to the fact we belong to a teaching church, and yes. the teaching is there. We have we have the documents now. People argue that they're hard to read. Uh, it surprises me a little bit, but very intelligent people will tell me they try to read them. This is recent times that they find it difficult to read them. So they are a bit difficult to read, but they are a part of our faith. They sure. are there. Sure. Uh, they're updated, so um, you know, you need to keep sight of that for ordinary, ordinary people, I think. In the academic world, where you're reading lots of books, and I accept the great value of books like the ones you mentioned, I'm mm-hmm. delighted you mentioned those. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm, I think we're sort of, I think we may be talking across purposes there. Because uh, I've. Because my, my point with this is, is, is really that, that these are books that are. Um, are presenting a, um, a first principles. What's that? Going, coming from first principles. Yes, or rather a a, a, um, a more um, uh, a, a simple presentation of of the um, uh, of, of the principles, rather than perhaps something which is you know sort of bigger and therefore more easily uh, kind of derailed or, or, or misinterpreted. Okay. And it also sort of comes from a presentation of the faith um, where there's not nearly as much controversy. And I guess if we look at the, the whole question of controversy uh, as, as perhaps uh, an issue, uh, I mean at some point we need sort of the, the dust to settle 
on the kind of um, you know variety of, of principles that or the perspectives that we're getting today. You know, the extent that if you talk to you know half a dozen people about what Catholic social thought is, then you'll get at least half a dozen different ideas today. Did you introduce that book to your colleagues in America? Were they familiar with it? Did they have they... One of the things I found surprising about it... Yes. Um, the reaction generally was... Well, there were two species of reaction, which was kind of almost interesting. You almost use it like lutenus, you know. Um, a number of people say, oh, yes, Carl. And, and the, 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 the expression, the, the best ex- expression was, yes, that is, is basically, you know, the, the best all-in-one compendium of Catholic social thought you'll find anywhere. And that was from a publisher. In, in fact, um, the, the IHS or one of the, uh, the directors of IHS. Uh, but other people would say, oh, no, you know, it's kind of old-fashioned and all the rest of it because what they really want is to turn Catholic social thought, you know, into... Uh, Either a um, or one of the two sort of liberal directions. Uh, yeah, I think maybe sort of discuss more um, you know, just what the purpose or what the application of, 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 of the book is. I think it's important for people to have available uh, sources which are approachable, which don't, which have a minimum of ambiguity, I guess. Uh, and you know, while you can go to the, Protest- like the, the Pentecostal kind of extreme of, of having so, things so simple that they actually lose the, um, uh, their, 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 uh, you know, their, their colour and, and the guts of it. Um, on the other hand, you, you've got to have a, a simple, consistent kind of set of references. Um, you know, something like, say, St Thomas's uh, Summa. You know, so it's pretty hard to misinterpret. You know, re- admit several parts in that. Whereas a lot of, um, you know, more recent stuff. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics lecture by Dr. Garrick Small. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.